you could not take New York or LA and fill it with chimpanzees. It would just be a bloodbath. It would never end, you know? There are very few, very few creatures that can communicate and cooperate with strangers. Humans can. We should give ourselves more credit for that because it's remarkable. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Radically Loved. I am joined by a very special guest. He is a veteran journalist who has held high-level editing positions at Medium, Esquire, Entrepreneur, and Hemispheres. His writing on everything from politics to travel to social science, business, and technology has appeared in New York Magazine, The Boston Globe, The New Yorker, Wired, Boston Magazine, The New Republic, and several textbooks. This was my favorite part of your bio. He's an avid parallel parker and, a, and an occasional working musician. He's also one of prestigious screenwriters Colony Fellowship in 2017 for a comedy television pilot that remains sadly unproduced. That made me sad. But we have <laughs> Joe Cohane on the show today, everybody. Too bad we don't have our clap track, but maybe we can insert it afterwards. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Yeah, I so we got introduced by our mutual friend Jason Pfeiffer, and I the minute that I read uh, the premise of your book called "The Power of Strangers: The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World," I was totally sold, and I dove in and I started to research your writings, and I read what prompted you to write this book, and I was like, okay, we have to have him on the show. I mean, there's just no other way around it. Excellent. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm I'm excited to get into it. So <laughs> I I know that you you've talked about this actually. I listened to an interview that you did about what prompted you to write this book and I I'd love for you to share that with the audience, but mostly I'm I'm so curious to hear from you how how you see this hopefully changing the way that we interact with people today. In yeah, the yeah. climate that we're in. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'll take it. I'll take that as a two-parter. Um, yeah. The first part is, um, so I was raised by very chatty people. My parents talked to everybody. They talked to strangers all the time. And I know a lot of, for a lot of kids, teenagers, especially, that's like a terrifying thing. That's so upsetting to kids when their parents talk to strangers a lot. It wasn't the case with me. Um, I liked it. And I got to see you know, the, the kind of the benefits of that to them, how they would meet people all the time. And even today, well into their seventies, they're still making new friends. So I, I would say if like, if there, if I have a life goal, it's to be 77 years old and still making, like still acquiring friends at that age, which is, it's pretty rare. It's remarkable. Right. But it's a testament, you know, to them as people, but to them as like talkers, as social people. 
So anyways, I was raised by people who talk to strangers and I went into journalism about 20 years ago. And that involves a lot of talking to strangers. And I used to do it myself, like not to the same degree that my parents did. Um, I didn't have the audacity to like lean across a table in a restaurant and start talking to people, which they can pull off because they just have the confidence. You know, I didn't have that. Um, I would feel too embarrassed or too, I would just be too apologetic about it. But, um, but so I, you know, in my day-to-day life, I lived in cities, I've lived in a bunch of different cities and, and I've talked to people a lot. I always found it really, you know, it could be entertaining. It could be poignant. It was fun. It was, you know, it added kind of a, an element of serendipity because you never knew where it was going to go. And I found that, you know, it, it usually went pretty well. Um, but a few years ago, I found, I realized one day after having a really profound conversation with a cab driver, and I love, I love cab drivers. Um, great, great resource for humanity, <laughs> cab drivers in so many levels. Um, but it occurred to me after I had this conversation that was, was really moving and really beautiful that um, I, I just really hadn't been doing it that much. I hadn't been talking to people like I used to. Um, and, you know, I wondered why I had stopped. And one of the reasons was I was just tired. I had a little kid. I had a stressful job. You know, I would just wear a path from my office to my house back and forth. Like we've all been in that mode. Um, and I just didn't have the bandwidth to like hang out like I used to in places. And I was too tired to like do the work of engaging with people, which, you know, as I think a lot of people know, can be kind of taxing too. It can be kind of cognitively demanding to talk to a stranger. And we could talk about that a bit too. Um, but the second thing was just, I had a smartphone. So you have a phone, you can basically, if you have a certain privilege, you could go the rest of your life without ever talking to another stranger again, right? You don't have to talk to anyone anywhere. You don't have to ask for directions. You don't have to call the pizza guy. All those things that used to require us to interact with strangers have been effectively eliminated by the advent of the smartphone. Um, You go into a bar and you just look at Twitter or something instead of talking to the person next to you, whereas previous generations, you'd go to a bar to be social, you would go to talk to people and strangers around you would be sources of entertainment and companionship and all kinds of stuff. Um, So that was kind of the genesis of the book. I, I started wondering why I had stopped and I started wondering what kept other people from doing this. From talking to strangers like what are the factors that conspire against these interactions which struck me at least from the outset as valuable um but then to look into why why we should you know what's the research say about this um and that led me into about 15 different wormholes of research that consumed my life for several years and it's such wow it's thank you for sharing that it's such an important (laughs) thing i think that we forget that we actually need to connect with other humans it's part of our yeah, our innate humanity to be able to have these interactions with people. And I love that so much. And especially with what you're saying, I grew up in East LA during the LA riots. And so for me, like interacting with other people was often dangerous. But as I got older, it really was the only way that I was ever able to hear accents from different parts of the world and hear other people have conversations. I remember this I don't know if you've been to LA much at all, but um, there's this place, uh, this cafe called The Griddle on Sunset Boulevard that's like a very famous cafe. And I bring this up all the time because I remember many a times being in line because you have to wait in line. It's this like totally, um, uh, how do I say? It's, I don't want to say it's not worth the wait. It's not as good as people would think it is, but for some reason it always has such a huge line. People are just wanting to come in. Maybe it's just because it's such a landmark for LA. But we would go anyway because the portions were unbelievably huge when we were younger and we would wait in line. And it was always so interesting 
we would meet people from different parts of the world and hear, yeah, different accents and have people tell us like where they were traveling from. And it was just always so, I don't know, there was, there was some, some deep resonating connection that would happen. Then you sit down close to these people and you're watching them enjoy their food and we're all just kind of talking and it felt very communal. And I always remember that feeling and I lament anytime I see people in a line and they're staring at their phones because I'm like, wow, you're, you might be missing on learning something new or some, some new way of being, or just getting to know another human being, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's this, this idea and I, I'm completely with you. Um, and I think I, I felt that intuitively before, but it turns out that there's some research to back this up too, but there's a psychologist named Arthur Aaron who's at Stony Brook, I think. And um, he has this theory of self-expansion, which is basically like, it's growth, it's personal growth in a way. It's the way that the challenges can expand you, that travel can expand you, learning can expand you. But I corresponded with him a little bit. Um, and I was like, could interactions with strangers have that same effect where they expand you? And he was like, yeah, you know, there's, there's much research on it, but yeah, it would make sense because if you have a profound interaction with someone and it sticks with you and it gives you like a bit of perspective that sticks in your head, or it gives you a window on the world that you didn't have before, or it even just teaches you something, you know, um, it gives you a little bit of empathy for someone whose life is different than you are. That's the idea of self-expansion. And I love that. I love the fact that when you do talk to someone who has an accent, someone who's from a different place than you, um, it makes it very difficult for you to maintain a simplistic perception of what that person is on account of what group they belong to. And there is a lot of research showing that this sort of contact can alleviate things like, like prejudice, like political polarization, that sort of like dehumanization. That when you do have an encounter with someone from a different group that you might not have had a lot of experience with and it goes well, all of a sudden that person kind of takes residence you residence in you in a way, right? Mm. Um, if you meet someone who's from a certain country and you have a wonderful experience, like it's just a quirk of human psychology, but you'll generalize that to the group and you'll say, you know, it's like my mother goes to a Vietnamese nail salon and she loves all the ladies that work there. And she, her perception of Vietnam is just like overwhelmingly positive because she made friends in this nail salon, right? Like that's right. kind of how we work. We're kind of groupish creatures. Um, but I love that idea of expansion. I love that idea of of introducing you to a lot of different perspectives of challenging a simplistic vision of the world you might have and kind of taking off your blinkers. And that can be done in like pretty passing interactions that can be done standing in line. It doesn't have to be a three hour conversation. It really is valuable. Why are people so afraid of it? You know, it's, it's, I see it in the grocery store. Sometimes you could be standing there and just be like, Oh, how's it going? Or how are you doing today? Somebody might look at you funny, like, you're strange or something, or you're not on your medication or some something, you know, yeah. it, it makes it feel a little, both Tori and I are very much those people that we like to ask people, how are you? How are you doing today? We try to, when we're out in the world, not have our phones on us, you know, we, we try very hard, but it's so interesting because then you still look out and everybody else is doing that same thing. So yeah, yeah I'm curious, um, yeah, what, what your experience has been doing all the research now, like, do you just go out and tell people that are on their phones, like, hey, you should talk to me? <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. So here, are you ready for a litany? Because like yes. I went, I, again, I went down the rabbit hole to try to figure out, you know, when I was doing this book, I wanted to understand every moving part of what otherwise should be a simple interaction. Like, and part of that was all the things that keep us from doing it. And so that can range, you know, 
in a macro sense, growing up, I was subjected to like so much stranger danger propaganda as like many generations were, yes. right? Like the cop would come to your, your school when you were in like second grade and tell you that every person you've, you've never met in the world poses a mortal threat to you, which is a really unhealthy thing to teach a kid, you know? <laughs> and, and political scientists are starting to find that that actually eroded like an entire generation's capacity oh, no. for trusting that's other us. people. I think we're the same generation. That totally, that totally is. So, um, so that's one thing. And I should add here that that is that is statistically baseless. The idea that strangers are dangerous to us is statistically baseless. The percentage of major crimes committed by strangers is so much smaller than the percentage of crimes committed by people known to the victim. And that could be anything from sexual assault, murder, major assault. All these things are overwhelmingly Kidnapping. done by the people who already know you. Yeah. The strangers are not the big threat, like the family member and the, the friends and the acquaintances. It's, hard, it's so horrible to say, um, but that's the threat. So um, that's one thing that can definitely poison us against other people. Being told that they're all like a danger to us is a really, a really harmful thing to teach kids. Um, things like inequality, wealth divides, um, boundaries related to gender and race and political orientation, ideology, nationality, all these things can make people anxious about the prospect of communicating with someone from another group. That's definitely pretty, pretty powerful. Um, cities, you know, when you're in a city, there are so many people around that where do you even start? Like the pace of life is so much faster. There aren't as many places to maybe hang around where you could have like a chance interaction with somebody like you could if you're in a small town. Obviously, small towns and cities are different when it comes mm -hmm. to talking to strangers. The social norms are different. Um, but one thing I really dug into with the help of a psychologist named Julian Sandstrom, who's a Canadian psychologist in England, um, was she kept finding that the main fear that people had was just a fear that they didn't know how to do it. And that came up in her research again and again and again, where people would be like, I'm going to be bad at it. They worried that they weren't, weren't going to know what they were going to talk about. The people would think they're boring. The people would think they're crazy. There was definitely a lot of that. Like people are going to think I'm unhinged because we're not supposed to talk to strangers. They'll think there's something wrong with me. Right. Um, people in England worried that once they started talking, they would say too much, which is hilarious. It's like the most English what? thing I've ever heard. They're like, you know, once you start spilling the personal stuff, it'll just be a torrent of personal stuff. And then your reputation will be ruined. Um, I love that. Uh, people worry they don't know how to end it. You know, like how do you end the conversation once you start? How do you walk away without without angering the person or insulting the person? So there are so many different things that conspire. Um, and the phone is a huge one too. Just having access to like a perpetual source of like you know sort of low calorie companionship and um, and entertainment and things like that. It's just so much more efficient to look at the phone than it is to engage in a conversation with somebody else. You know, which is which can be very challenging, especially when you're not in when you're out of practice, when you don't feel yeah. that you're good at it, you're going to, you're, you're going to believe that you're going to struggle. But the research has found that once people do it, they find it comes to them much more naturally than they would have expected. And it tends to go much better than they anticipate. Wow. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> I'm just so fascinated by all of it, especially all the research that you did. Um, what is the difference between engaging and connection? Um, in your opinion? It's a good question. I think it's just a, a kind of qualitative thing, probably. Mm -hmm. um, when you connect with somebody, I would say at a minimum, you're making eye contact. There is some sort of emotional response, which could be like a, a laugh. It could be like pausing to actually think about what the person's saying for a second. You know, I had an interaction with like a girl who worked at the 
the market near me um, where I went on this jag. Cause I, when I was doing this book, I was like experimenting myself. I was trying to like build myself up as a completely social animal, like step-by-step. Step, so I could have like, when you read this book, the book has like, it's like a training regimen. Like you go, it's almost like learning to run a marathon or something step-by-step step, how you can get good at this. And so I went on this real jag uh, at the urging of a, of a psychologist of when people ask me how I was in the morning, you know, that like you go into a coffee shop and they say, how are you doing? And they don't really care. And you don't really answer. And like nothing right. is exchanged, you know, like they right, call right. them scripts. These are scripts. So um, I was supposed to break the script and breaking the script in one way is to just give an actual answer to the question. So when someone says, good morning, how are you doing? You actually answer the question. Um, and, you know, this woman, Georgie Nightingale, gave me advice to answer numerically, which is brilliant. So if someone's like, how are you doing today? You just say, oh, I'd say I'm about a seven out of 10. And that like stops everything in its tracks. And then you ask them how they're doing and they will most likely answer numerically. And then you oh. can talk. It's amazing. It's like a magic trick. That's but really anyways, cool. And this particular morning I was, I was buying coffee in the morning and I was like the, the girl at the cash register was, was you know, teenage, probably late teenage years, um, asked me how I was. And I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a little worn out. My kid kept me up all night last night. I'm exhausted. And she goes, how old is she? And I was like, oh, she's about three. She goes, it'll get better. <laughs> and this kid was like 17 years old. It was so great. So like, that's, that's, that's connection, I would say, right? Like that was an interaction that was 20 seconds long, um, but I adored her for it. It was, yeah. it was such a wonderful thing. And, you know, we're different ages, we're different races. Um, and we just had that little moment, you know, and I came <laughs> away from that moment feeling kind of good. So you can have like more intense, more you know, longer, deeper conversations with people, which I certainly did. I had some incredible conversations with people, like life-changing conversations. Um, and those are meaningful and that's real connection. And I made actual friends doing this book, which is really cool. Wow. Um, but even the little things, you know, even the research backs this up too. Um, even, you know, like a nice little chat with a barista in the morning, studies have shown can make us feel happier, more connected, more optimistic, more trusting. Like there's a raft of benefits to even having like kind of high quality small talk with somebody. You just have to actually do it. That's the thing. And it makes people wow. super anxious, the prospect of doing it. Wow. And isn't that so interesting? What did your research say about that anx anxiousness that happens with when a stranger interacts with you? Yeah, it, it could kind of go, there's sort of two points to make. One is everybody overestimates the potential for rejection. Um, one of the main fears is the fear that people are going to be rejected. And, you know, there are these psychologists, Nicholas Epley and Juliana Schroeder, who did these like, these experiments are amazing, but they did, they sent people out to chat up strangers on mass transit, which is like, that's a big no-no. You're not supposed to talk to people on the subway. They did it in Chicago. They did it on buses, trains. They did it okay. in London where no one does it just to see what, what these people expected would happen. Right. No, but why is it a no-no? Oh, it's just the social norm. Like Londoners think that they're much less friendly than they actually are. And I don't know where that delusion comes from. But every time I go, I was like, people have seemed fine. I don't know why you guys think you're so unbelievably unfriendly, but they do. But then you talk to them and they're great. Um, but so the idea of the study was they were going to send people out, but beforehand they were going to ask them how it was going to go. You know, estimate the percentage of people who are going to talk to you, estimate how long the interaction will go on for. Will it make you feel good? Will it make you feel bad? All that stuff. And then they actually, and everybody was overwhelmingly pessimistic. They're like, everyone's going to think I'm nuts. These conversations are going to ask, they're going to last four seconds. I'm going to feel really bad about myself. Like, and the complete opposite happened. Literally not a single person was rejected. Conversations lasted like an average of 15 minutes. So they ended up being pretty long for commuters. You know, they're trapped on the subway together. So no one's really going anywhere. Um, they really liked the people they talked to. They thought the people liked them. And on the whole, they felt that their commute was much more pleasant than it would be just like staying alone. 
So it's interesting. Like we we're super, super, super pessimistic about how these things will go. And study after study after study after study has shown that they tend to go very well. And the reason they go well is because we're built for this. We are, you know, to your point earlier, we're social animals. Like socializing is food for us. It's nutrition. We have to do it to stay healthy. And when we don't do it, we become unhealthy. Um, but yeah, I love that. I love that idea. And I've read a lot of the survey data. People are just like, this is a disaster. I don't want to do this. Yes. Uh, and then they're like, it's wonderful. People are really nice. It was, it was pretty reassuring. I love that. If you're a creator who is eager to start conversations about the world of work, who believes engagement is more than a metric, and who thrives on building community, then the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator Program is for you. I can't tell you how many of my friends have had to refocus, reimagine, even recreate themselves over the last year because of what has been happening. Their creativity feels completely stifled and they're looking for different ways to continue to have a career doing something that they love. And the first thing I did was recommend this new LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program. For you, if you're the type of person that likes to make content that gets people talking, the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program is gonna give you the place to do it. They have tools like a dedicated creator manager and an in-depth training to help you create in an engaging way. You'll get early access to creator tools and a built-in creator network. You'll receive opportunities to be featured across LinkedIn, exposing your content to more LinkedIn members. And to top it all off, you'll get a $15,000 grant to bring your vision to life. And all you have to do is apply. Create more content than ever. Create a conversation visit linkedin.com forward slash creators to apply today. That's linkedin.com forward slash C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S, linkedin.com forward slash creators. As a health coach, it was always a struggle to try and find the right app to recommend to my clients. I wanted to find an app that not only taught nutrition and fitness habits, but also created new ones so that my clients stayed motivated. Enter MyFitnessPal. MyFitnessPal isn't a rigid diet plan. Instead, you gradually learn from personalized data that works for you. And if your version of healthy looks different from mine or someone else's, that's okay. The whole point is helping you find the best path for your goals. If you're wanting to go the extra mile, check out the MyFitnessPal Premium Membership. The Premium Membership gives you custom tools and expert guidance to help you reach your personal goals. My original motivation to using MyFitnessPal was to improve my mood. I was kind of having a little bit of a lull, low lull low lull. And I know that it had to do with my food choices at the time. I was really consuming a lot of sugar and it was leaving me feeling really depleted. And so when I started to track all of my foods on my fitness pal, it helped me see exactly what was going on. And not only did it give me recommendations, it also provided nutritional plans so that I can have a deeper understanding of what was going on. And if you're like me and you need extra support, you're not alone. You have access to guided daily workouts and meal plans written by dietitians and exercise scientists, plus support from other members with shared goals and experiences. MyFitnessPal does way more than just count calories. Get the support you need to meet your health goals. Unlock all the amazing things MyFitnessPal can do just like I did. Start your premium membership today. Go to loved.myfitnesspal.com and use the code LOVED to get a one-month premium membership for free. That's loved dot m-y-f-i-t-n-e-s-s-p-a-l dot com code loved 
for a free one-month premium membership, loved.myfitnesspal.com. Can you talk to us about the difference that you found between actual interaction and interacting on like social media, the -hmm. difference of that? Yeah. The big thing is it's much more complicated to do it in person. And so I think people are more comfortable doing it on social media because you're, you might be anonymous or you're not going to be in the company of the person and you can wait as long as you want to respond. You can craft your response. You don't have to be like improvisational like you do when you're in person, when you're in person. And this is good. There's a, there's a psychologist who studied this too. Um, um, Oh God, I can't remember his name. All right. I'm, I apologize to this guy. I'll try to remember it. He's at the University of Michigan. His name's Oscar and I cannot remember his last name. Oh God. But he did a lot of research on um, how cognitively demanding interactions are in person um, where it actually is like it's draining. It's tiring to have a, to have wow. an interaction with a stranger in person. Um, but the plus side of that is because is basically that it's like exercise. Um, mm. You're working your executive functions of the brain much more so than you are when you're just talking to someone you know. Um, and in the end, he, um, he found that there were like significant cognitive gains that could be gotten from making a practice of talking to strangers, just because the same thing, like it's like lifting weights. If you do it enough, you'll get stronger, right? If you have enough interactions like this, you will get mentally stronger. You'll get cognitively stronger. Your brain will literally perform better. Um, but the reason why it's so demanding is because think about it. Think about when you interact with someone who you've never met before. You have no frame of reference. You have no shorthand between you, right? You have no shared experiences. You don't know what you're going to talk about. You don't know who the person is. You have to listen to them. You have to like watch their body language. You have to make eye contact. You're usually at least a little concerned that you want to come across as is like smart or appealing, right? Like you're very conscious of the way you're coming across. Um, You're trying to think of what you're going to say when they're talking, but you're also trying to listen to them ideally to figure out who they are and what motivates them and what, like it's, there are so many moving parts to it that when you're out of practice, it can be really daunting. It can feel really hard and kind of overwhelming to do it. Um, The good news is like, again, it comes pretty natural to people once they do it, once they get past the anxiety and once they work those muscles a little bit, um, it becomes second nature. I mean, it just becomes nature because it is, this is our nature. I mean, I, I dug into this pretty deeply in the book, um, like human humanity's history with strangers and how across various points over the last 2 million years, like humans have figured out a way to communicate and cooperate with strangers. And that's the foundation of civilization, right? When you think about living in a city, you could not take New York or LA and fill it with chimpanzees. It would just be a bloodbath. It would never end. You know, there are very few, very few creatures that can communicate and cooperate with strangers. Humans can, we should give ourselves more credit for that because it's remarkable in the, the scope of the natural world. Um, but I really liked going through, going back through, you know, hunter-gatherer societies and early cities and the evolution of hospitality and all these things wow. to get a sense of like how the secret to our species success is the ability to talk to people we don't know, right? And we're wary of them, like we can be suspicious of them, but we have again and again and again created structures and frameworks that allow us to do it. And once we do it, um, it helps us as social creatures, but it also drives innovation. You know, it drives, you know, sort of empathy, all these things. There are all these social benefits to, to having the capacity on a social level to talk to strangers. Sorry, that was yeah. a real stem winder of an answer there. Oh, no, no, that was so good. No, it's tr- and it's true, especially this last piece that you just said about the empathy, because I feel like so much of that is missing, especially in our current climate and the current 
you know, social events that are going on right now, there's such a lack of that human humanness towards each other, that that lack of empathy, that lack of compassion, because people have created such a binary way of being, you know, it's like, if you're not, if you don't believe what I believe, then I don't want to talk to you. Um, and it, it really is just creating way more separation in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I think polarization is a real problem. I mean, segregation is a real problem when, when different people don't live together and don't have contact with each other. Um, it leads to entrenchment. It leads to suspicion. It leads to dehumanization. It's really bad when you have a diverse society. And that's it could be racially, it could be gender based, it could be political, where the different people don't interact with each other. Like that's that's poison for a society. Um, but yeah, the idea of like a really rigid identity and the sort of knee jerk dismissiveness of people who are different than we are, all those things can be alleviated through conversation, through connection, through having like positive interactions. Like, with people. And you're talking real conversation, not like thumbed conversation. Yeah. I think you, you kind of have to do it in person. You can be really disciplined and do it online. I mean, I'm not a total Luddite. I'm a bit of a Luddite, but, um, you can do it online. You just have to be really mindful about it and you have to be really, um, intent on connecting with someone, you know, because it's so much easier to just smack somebody down. You don't see them as whole people online. You just see like you see an argument and then you form a fictitious person around right. that argument and then you get really mad at that fictitious person. Totally. Like that's the dynamic yeah. for online. Yeah. But when you're in, in in the company of somebody else, you know, human psychology kind of drives us to seek some sort of commonality when we're with somebody else. Right. Oh, you have a dog. I have a dog. And then like, we both have dogs. Like, okay, we can talk about dogs and feel a little bit better about each other. And then you can talk about something else. And eventually if you feel a certain liking and a certain connection, you can then move on to the really hard stuff. But I think the tendency online is just to start with the really hard stuff, fight it out, dismiss each other. Um, you know, it makes it really easy to blind yourself to the complexity of other people in a really dangerous way. Um, but you can, you can connect. You just have to go out there wanting to, you have to go out there wanting to understand um, wanting to know people's stories, you know, even if someone says something that you think is objectionable, try to figure out what got them there. Try to figure out what their story is. You know, you probably won't agree in the end, but you'll at least know that you can have a conversation. And that's a really important start. I think that's yeah. that's the beginning of rebuilding right there. Yeah, no, I love that. And how do we and do you discuss this in the book? How do we alleviate the suspicion? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of training like uh you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself a super optimistic person generally. I'm pretty skeptical. You know, my business is a cynical business, obviously, but right. I came away from this experiment feeling much more optimistic about oh. people. And I think the reason why is it's a question of data. Um, and I didn't put this in the book because it only came to me later on when I was having conversations about it. But when you interact with the world through media, through, you know, the media, like journals, journalism, through TV, news, stuff like that, or through social media, it's going to give you an overwhelmingly negative perception of your fellow humans, right? Because it just feeds you negativity. Like that's the yeah. business. The business is negativity. Um, and increasingly, as we shift to shift more and more of our communications and our interactions to online platforms, that's the data we're getting, right? And it's not to say that it's not true. Like people can be horrible to each other for sure. Um, but it's an incomplete set of data that we're getting by seeing the world through these specific lenses. Now, when you go out into the world and you actually interact with people, you may think going out into the world that people are, are like trash, right? My perception of people based on social media is that people are awful. 
And then you have an interaction with someone and it goes well, and you're kind of surprised that it went well for one. And you're maybe you learned something, or maybe you saw someone in a different way, or maybe you just got a funny story, whatever it is. You had a positive interaction. That's good data. Um, and by being out in the world myself and seeking out as many of these interactions as I could, I felt that it was a really healthy corrective to pessimism in a way that when you meet people in the flesh, they are complicated. They're hard to pigeonhole. They can be really lovely. Some of them can be really tricky to deal with, you know, um, but it makes it really difficult to say like, this group is this, this person is this, you know, people are this. Um, they will constantly surprise you. They'll constantly challenge a simplistic view of who they are. Um, and for me, it ended up being like a life-changing experience. Um, it was really like taking in that good data and, and opening myself to positive experiences like that, just, you know, almost completely randomly, um, definitely changed the way I think about people um, in a really beneficial way that stuck with me too. I mean, I still do it today. Um, I feel much better about people than... I did when I started. I used to joke that I was the only person that came out of 2019 feeling better about humanity. And now 2020 happens and 2021 happens. And like, I feel okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not super <laughs> bullish, but I, I feel reassured. I feel slightly reassured. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. It's like how, yeah, especially now, has anything shifted in you with that belief system? I would imagine not. Um. It goes back to the idea of self-expansion that I talked about before, yeah. which is, you know, I spent a week with a group called Braver Angels, which is this political nonprofit that literally teaches Republicans and Democrats to like speak to each other, to sit at a table and not throttle each other. Like this is the goal of the organization. It kind of shows you how far we've fallen, um, but they were great. They were amazing. And the way they did it was um, they would put people together. You'd put them in a table. And they wouldn't allow them to talk about politics until they talked about their families, until they talked about their hometowns, stuff like that. And then they would connect. And then they could, once they were like, I like you, I'm comfortable. Now we can have a conversation about mm. abortion, about gun control. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that personal connection first, you never, you just can't have a discussion. All you're going right. to do is yell at each other. So for me, I think about that a lot. And I think about the effect that that had on the, the people who went to that convention and who belonged to that organization and the effect that it had on me. You know, I'm like, I grew up in Boston. I live in New York. Um, I'm kind of moderate liberal, but I'm definitely like a Northeastern liberal in a lot of ways. Having met a lot of people who are different than I am um, and have like pleasant interactions with them and, and genuinely challenging and interesting conversations, um, that expanded me and that those people took residency and in me in a way that makes it impossible for me to dismiss like half the country, right? And that's like the, the fuel of our politics right now is just dismissing half the country, no matter yeah. what side you're on. So now I can get really upset about policies that are being enacted in certain states, but I've also met people from those states and in many cases I've been to those states and I had good experiences. And I know that like, if you can get people to a table, um, you can talk. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna solve the big problems. It means that you can talk, you can fix a pothole or something, you know, you can put up yeah. a new stop sign, you start with the little things, and then you build trust. And over the course of what I think will be 20 years of political rebuilding, you can get to the, you know, the, some of the bigger stuff. Yes. Um, but I think about that a lot when I start to feel really angry, really cynical, um, specifically about other groups, you know, like in this case, it would just be Southern Republicans in a lot of ways. Um, those, those people are, are like, they've taken up in my head. And anytime I try to make a generalization, like they're there, uh, making it difficult for me to simplify a giant group of people. Right, um, right. And so that sort of, that turned into a sort of discipline for me that I think is pretty valuable. Um, and, and kind of trying to foster or trying to develop the reflex of being like, 
hearing something you don't like and instead of responding with um, dismissiveness or contempt, be like, pause for a second, count to five, and then be like, try to understand this, right? It might still be completely something I completely, you know, vehemently object to, but what got them there? What's the story that got them there? If you know that story, then you can have the conversation, but otherwise you're just shouting into the void. Yeah, no, I love it. It's such a mindful practice. So that's very much what I love. I love to go into that space and instead of being reactive, act more wisely and just do your best to hear people out. Most of the time, people just want to be seen, heard and understood. And I think that if we can actually interact with people in a in a empathetic way, then we can achieve exactly what you're saying. Honestly, this conversation has made me so optimistic and hopeful. <laughs> I love that you did all this research for us because I will tell you, especially, you know, I, I, as I told you, I'm still recovering from, from being sick. It really puts you in this state when you're consuming media and you're just feeling that there is no hope and that things are never going to get better and people are just going to continue to fight and it's just going to hell in a handbasket. So this really creates a level of optimism within me because I've seen it, I've experienced it. I know that what you're saying is true and obviously you have the data to prove it, but I've always said that us interacting and having more connection is ultimately going to achieve more healing and it's going to achieve more happiness. And I, I love that you keep going back to this idea of expansion because I feel that that's what we're missing right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're becoming small, small and incurious and angry. Um, and that's that's bad for us personally. And it's it's very bad for society as well. But there is like the connection, you know, the connection part of it is it's not like an add on. Um, it is that's the whole ball game for humans. Right. Again, humans are hyper social creatures. <clears throat> this is a, there's a guy, Michael Tomasello at Duke, who's like a evolutionary psychologist who, who I talked to and who was great. And he made the point that we are hyper cooperative apes. He's like, the human is the hyper cooperative ape. And I started laughing and he was like, everybody laughs at that. He was like, but it's you have people have the wrong baseline. They think because someone cut them on, off in traffic or someone yelled at them online that humans aren't cooperative. He's like, they're so much more cooperative than almost any other creature. Um, so that sort of connection, that sort of cooperation, um, that's not like a leisure, like a, like a, you know, like a weekend activity. It's not recreational, right? It's not an add-on. It is who we are. We require this. And a lot of the more difficult things that humans have gone through, all the way back to like the creation of civilization, the rise of cities, the rise of bigger groups of more inclusive groups of people. Um, that's all the result of connection being like a practical tool, right? Like binding together, you know, to speed innovation, to protect ourselves, to, to you know, increase the pool of mates, like all the practical things that happen because we're wired for connection. Um, that's the secret to the success of the species. Um, so I always like, I, I go into that again, because I, I tend to be kind of skeptical, um, but it really is like, it's incredibly important. We require it. And when we don't get it, we fritz out and go crazy. And, you know, you can see it now in rates of loneliness are through the roof. They're at epidemic levels and they're corroding not only our society, but many societies. Yeah. Um, you can see rates of depression, rates of mental illness, all these things are skyrocketing. And it's impossible to say, you know, does, is the smartphone behind that? It's a cocktail of things that's driving that. <clears throat> but we're not getting what we need right now in terms of human human interaction, in terms of connection. 
and society is struggling and we're struggling as a result of it. So we need to renew the commitment to do that. Like this is a very sensible, pragmatic way to try to heal some of the divisions of the country and some of the problems that we're facing. Yeah. I mean, I was just talking about this the other day, you know, and obviously because of COVID, we're not having as many open social interactions as we would. And I was just having this exact conversation uh, with my partner and I, w- I was explaining how before we could all go to a ball game and everybody's cheering for the same team and it, there's this communal experience or you go watch a show, you go see a band that you really like or you go and you, you go to an exhibit and it's just you interact with people who are appreciating and looking at the same thing and that's what causes, what creates the commonality, that thread that, oh, you have a dog, I have a dog, we're dog parents, you know. Um, and I feel that it's obviously the state of the world has made it very difficult for us to interact at that level, but it's not to say that it's not impossible. I mean, we could still do it. Like I said earlier, I was at the grocery store and every time I go to the grocery store, we always ask the person checking us out how they're doing and not, and we most of the time don't ever let them get away with the, oh, fine. It's like, oh, like what are you, is, are you close to the end of your shift? Like what, you know, like give us something. That's great. I always <laughs> you know? do. My line is always, are people behaving themselves? I ask them if people are behaving themselves. Uh, and it goes, it's, you get the funniest stories tonight because they never are. <laughs> never. never. You know? They're never behaving themselves. <laughs> so Joe, thank you so much. I definitely want to be respectful of your time. And I do want to just thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking about this. I think it's such an important topic and I'm so excited. I can't wait to read your book and I can't wait for everybody that's listening to read your book. For the people that are listening, where can they go for more information? Um, you can get the book anywhere, um, you know, online. If you do Amazon, if you do bookshop.org or any of your local bookstores, it's available all over the place. Um, but yeah, it's called The Power of Strangers. Um, and I hope people buy it. And I hope they like it. Well, we will put all of those links in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, uh, whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on, just go to the description or the info button. And all of those links that Joe just mentioned will be on there. So I do have one final question to ask you, and it mm-hmm. pertains to this podcast. And it's the reason why I started the podcast, because I believe that we are all radically loved and supported by God, universe, source, whatever higher power you believe in that there is a force the universe works for us and not against us and so the final question to you is how do you feel radically loved um my five-year-old told me that she loves me so much it makes her feel like her heart is going to explode yesterday <laughs> so that's pretty radical pretty vivid imagery there <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's the big, you know, you get a little kid, that's that's your that's your love affair right there. But I would say yeah, that one, that one, that's the one. That's so beautiful. And look, <laughs> just like the sweet little barista told you it got better, didn't it? <laughs> so there's still some moments, but yeah, it's improving. <laughs> it's on a positive trajectory. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much. We so appreciate you. Thank you for being on the show and for being part of our community. We're so excited and we can't wait to read your book. Thank you so much for all the work that you did. And we look forward to having you on the show again soon. Thank you, Rosie. It was so great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so excited to continue to do this. Please share this with your friends. Email us. Message us on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or on Twitter at Rosie Acosta. Subscribe on iTunes. Write a review. 
We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.